Hey everybody, welcome to the Bottom Dollar Outdoors podcast, where every blue collar man and woman can have a little fun and get encouraged to get outside. While sitting out here in the barn, we like to tell fishing lies, tall tales about big bucks, and chat about crazy things going on in the outdoor world. Somewhere among all that nonsense, you may learn a thing or two about the great outdoors, so sit back, crack open a cold drink, and enjoy. Hey y'all. Heck yeah, it is the 10th episode of the Bottom Dollar Outdoors podcast. Thank you all for stopping in. I'm Brad, I'm your host. Tonight we're going to be talking about a couple of things that I know you guys are probably pretty familiar with. At least the first topic, I know most of you have known this gun, held this gun, probably shot this gun, and may even have one. One of the most popular hunting rounds of all time. We're going to be talking about the 30 6 We talk about its history as both a war rifle and then its current use as a hunting rifle. And then in our outhouse segment, we're going to talk about something that I know comes up a lot. If you're a hunter, if you listen to hunting podcasts, if you watch about hunting on TV, more than likely you've been asked this question. But in our outhouse segment, we're going to talk about the the question that is, is hunting still relevant in our society? So we're going to dive into that. That's kind of a ethical topic. I'm going to get in on just, it's just my personal opinion. I'm going to give that. And then in our shop talk segment, I'm going to give you a few tips on some things you can do about your boat trailer, make it a little bit more safe, some things you can go over before you leave your house, and things you can do on the road as you're going back and forth between your house, where you're going fishing, and coming back, just to make your trip a little bit more safe for you. So guys, hang on. We're going to dive into these topics. Hopefully it's going to be a good show for y'all. Be back in just a few minutes. All right. So tonight we're going to be talking about probably the most famous hunting round of most of our lifetimes, our parents' lifetimes, and probably our grandparents' lifetimes. We'll be talking about the 30 alt 6 I'm going to be giving you the military history of it first. This all this information is going to be coming straight from Wikipedia. But most of you have shot this gun, know this gun, probably even own one of these. The 30 alt 6 is probably one of the most well-rounded rounds out there it's a great gun but i'm gonna jump into the history of it because a lot of people especially younger people don't realize the historical significance that this gun has so we're gonna get into it this is coming straight from wikipedia the 30 alt 6 springfield cartridge also known as the 7.62 by 63 millimeter or also known as his military uh, designation is the 30 government 1906 it was introduced by the United States military in 1906 it was later standardized it remained until use until the late 1970s the 30 
refers to the caliber of the bullet. So it's a 30 caliber. The aught six refers to the year the cartridge was developed or adopted, 1906. It replaced the 3003 or the 3003, the six millimeter Lee Navy, and the 3040 um, 3040 Crag. The 30 remained in the U.S. Army's primary rifle and machine gun cartridges until the for nearly almost 50 years before it was replaced by the 7.62 by 51 NATO and the 5.56 by 45 NATO. Both of those rounds still remain current in U.S. and NATO service, but the 30-06 still remains a a very popular sporting round and has ammunition basically made by everybody. Same thing with rifles. Almost every major gunmaker still makes a 30-06 for sporting and hunting. Uh, the 30 6 has been around. It's been through World War One, been through World War Two, the Korean War, even through the first few stages of the Vietnam War. And still is used by sportsmen to this day. Like I said, it's still one of the most popular hunting cartridges out there. This is just, for my research, the first adaptation in military for the 30 6 was the M1903 Springfield. It was formerly the United States Rifle Caliber 30-06 Model 1903. Like I said, this is coming straight from Wikipedia, so if I get anything wrong, let me know. I'm sure somebody will ring up in this one. Anytime you talk about guns, somebody's going to correct you. But it says the 1903 is an American five-round magazine-fed bolt-action service-repeating rifle used primarily during the first half of the 20th century. It was officially adopted as a United States military bolt-action rifle on June 19, 1903. Saw service in World War I. It was officially replaced as a standard infantry rifle by the faster-firing semi-automatic 8-round, probably one of the most popular versions of this gun, the M1 Garand, starting in 1936. However, the M1903 Springfield remained in service as a standard-issue infantry rifle during World War II. Since the U.S. entered the war without sufficient M1 rifles to support all armed troops, it remained as a sniper rifle during World War II, the Korean War, and even in the early stages of the Vietnam War. It remains popular as a civilian firearm, historical collector's piece, and competitive shooting rifle, and as a military drill rifle. Going into Another adaptation of it, which I just mentioned, was the M1 Garand, which is probably, the if you're looking for a semi-automatic hunting rifle that's old school, the M1 Garand is very popular. The M1 Garand is a 30 6 caliber semi-automatic rifle that was standard U.S. service rifle during World War II, Korean War, and also saw limited service in the Vietnam War. The M1 rifles were issued to U.S. forces, though many hundreds of thousands were also provided as foreign aid to American allies. The M1 Garand is still used by drill teams, military honor guards. It is also widely used by civilians, like I said, for hunting and target shooting, as also as a collectible rifle. The M1 Garand is named after Canadian-American designer John Garand. It was first standard-issue semi-automatic military rifle. By most accounts, the M1 performed did perform well 
and it says here that uh, General George Patton called it the greatest battle implement ever devised. The M1 Garand replaced the bolt action, like I said, the M1903 as the standard U.S. military rifle in 1936, and itself replaced later on by the selective fire M14, and that was on March 26, 1958. One of the other popular military versions of this gun, which is probably one of my favorites, is the M1919 Browning machine gun. 30 caliber machine fed or machine gun widely used during the 20th century, especially during World War II, the Korean War, and into the Vietnam War. The 1919 saw service as a light infantry, coaxial mounted aircraft, and anti aircraft machine gun used by U.S. and other places. This gun can fire 400, 600 rounds per minute. The gun have had later on, the gun was recalibered in different or sorry it was chambered in different rounds and it's probably one of the most popular guns you can think of as far as machine guns you know you see old war movies of them having you know jeep mounted machine guns that's usually what you would see would be the m1919 but coming into its hunting i guess it's hunting popularity the first hunting designation of this gun that I can find is in 1908 and Winchester made this into their model 1985 lever action rifle it was probably the from what I could find is the first commercially produced sporting rifle chambered in, thir- in the 30-06 round since then I'm not even going to go into the list of how many rifles were chambered into this because we'd be here all night trying to talk about it the 30 alt 6 as far as a hunting round has been I, I would say probably what all hunting rounds are I guess measured against because of its popularity I mean people were coming back from the wars they were bringing these guns back and they were using them as hunting rifles well I mean, the 30 L6 can kill anything. You can you can kill take this gun and you can use it for everything for killing varmints. I know they chambered this thing down to I, I believe the lowest I seen was a 90 grain sabotaged bullet. You can use it for shooting groundhogs, all the way up for moose hunting rounds. I mean, up to 220 grain bullets and even beyond that, I'm sure. But if you had to have one gun, especially in the past 50 years that you could say you could take anywhere and hunt anything, it has been the 30 6 especially in North America. Kill anything from caribou all the way down to whitetails with this gun. I personally have one. I have a Remington 742 Woodsmaster that was passed down to me from my grandfather. It was my first, I, guess I would call it my first larger caliber, my first 30 caliber gun. I had my 243, which... It's a great gun in itself for what you can use it for. But man, I that 742 Woodsmaster is probably that one gun that my grandfather gave me. There's no telling how many hundreds of deer have been shot with this gun. And you cannot deny the versatility of that 30 6 Like I said, I'm not afraid if I need to, if I don't have a gun to carry with me, say if I want to go out elk hunting, I'll grab that gun and I'll take it. 
if I want to go deer hunting here in South Carolina, I'm going to take that gun. If I decide I want to go bear hunting somewhere in West Virginia, I'll take that 30 6 I do have another gun now that I could take in its place, but that 30 6 is reliable. I know what it's going to do. Ammo is easy to find. And it's going to do a lot of damage. It's going to kill about anything I put it up against here in North America. A lot of people can say that the gun is probably not the best hunting rifle or hunting cartridge for deer. They're not going to say it's the best for elk. But if you have one gun that you want to take and you want to take anywhere, but you got to pick one gun, I'm going to say that. The 30 6 is the one gun that you could take anywhere in North America and get the performance you need out of it. You may not want to shoot this gun at 1,000 yards, but if you're hunting within 500 yards, you're not going to be able to beat the gun. It has moderate recoil, good accuracy, and a variety of cartridges to pick for it that you can use for whatever game you're hunting. And there's a lot of people who throw it down and say, oh, the 270 is better. Or they throw it down and say, oh, the 300 is better. Yeah, they may be, but why are you judging every gun against the 30 6 It's because it's the most common. It's the, it's, I would say it's the one that everything is judged against. And there's a reason for it because of what your grandfather, your great-grandfather, it's the gun that they all used. And this gun isn't going anywhere for a long time. Every year, they come out better and better rounds for this thing. And it's never going to go anywhere. You can buy it in just about every manufacturer you want to get you, whether you want to get a Savage, whether you want to get a Winchester, whether you want to get a Remington. They're going to have a 30 alt 6 available for you in that whatever model they make. So guys, if you really want an all-around basic entry-level rifle you can buy this gun and you're going to be able to use it for anything you want to hunt in north america if you're going to africa eh, it probably works pretty good on your lighter stuff to medium stuff in africa never been there couldn't tell you you probably want something a little bigger to carry but here in north america you're not going to beat a 30 6 it is probably there like i said it's the most reliable with the biggest range of any gun you could use if our U.S. military trusted it for over 50 years, I'm going to trust it in my deer stand. So, guys, I'm telling you, if you have one, keep it. Love it. You don't have to use it all the time. You could take your 7 millimeters, you take your 270s. Just like I do, I have a 243 that I take out when I'm hunting in the woods in close range. Shooting long range, I use a 7 millimeter short magnum. But if I just want something I can carry that I know is going to perform well for me in any situation, I'm going to grab that 742 Woodsmaster and I'm going to take it to the woods with me because it's got iron sights on the bottom, scope up top. No matter where I'm shooting, I know that 30 alt 6 is going to get the job done. So that's my review. That's the history of 30 alt 6 and what I personally think about them. You guys write me. Tell me what you think about them. If you like them, if you don't like them if you have one that you've always loved if you have one of these in that in the lever action i want to hear about it i've never seen one never shot one 
The only lever action I've ever shot has been a 30-30. So, guys, tell me about what you got. So we're going to move on here in a minute. We're going to get into the ethical topic for tonight. In the outhouse segment, we're going to talk about whether or not that hunting for meat is still relevant in today's time. So I'm going to give you my opinion on that. We'll be back in just a second. Enjoy some music. Grab you another beer. Be back in just a second. Okay, we're going to dive right into this. In our outhouse segment tonight, we're going to be talking about a very controversial topic, I guess. And that question is, in today's times, is hunting still relevant? And the short answer that I'm going to give you is yes to the people that still hunt. Hunting is becoming more and more popular and less and less popular at the same time. It just depends on who you ask and where you ask the question. The main argument against people going hunting for meat is that you can go buy your meat in a store. Well, hunters for a long time have understood that, you know, whenever there's meat available in the woods, go and get it. And people who've always bought their meat from the grocery stores always taking it from... You know, it's always going to be there. Just that perspective. It's always going to be there. Well, here in the past two months, what has, what have you learned? Meat's not always going to be available in the grocery store. Production agriculture, it's a necessity to feed the billions of people on this planet. Well, here, like I said, the past few months we have learned it's not always going to be there for you. You people go and hoard feet or hoard the meat up. They go and they buy all the stuff. Supply chains break down. Those kind of things. So people who hunt, like me, I haven't had to go to the grocery store yet unless I just wanted to. If I wanted to buy meat, I didn't have to do it. I have a whole freezer full here. I have everything from raccoons. I have everything. I have deer squirrels, have fish that I went and caught. I have it here. Um, you know, unless I absolutely wanted to go buy something, I haven't had to. The supply chain could break down completely. I'm going to be self-sufficient. So that's the argument of being a hunter, is that I am self-sufficient. However, you know, while hunting is still a popular sport, you can go out and get your own meat if you want to. Is it sustainable for the mass of the population? No, it is not. Not everybody can afford to do it. Not everybody has the availability to do it. Most people who live in metropolitan areas wouldn't even know how to begin. They couldn't find the land. And if everybody all of a sudden wanted to go out and go hunting, the the land that we have and a number of animals could not support that. This is not a argument between hunting and you know, commercial agriculture because we need commercial agriculture. It's going to be there. It's not going away. It's not going anywhere. 
But people who hunt, to them, the freedom of being able to go and hunt and fish and provide for themselves and not depend on that supply chain gives them the freedom and the security of knowing that they can feed themselves or feed families, feed their neighbors. It, it is very self-serving and prideful to be able to do that kind of thing. So it is 100% truly relevant to us who do it. To the masses who live in these big cities, probably not. It's probably not relevant to them. They look at it as, oh my God, you're going out there and you're killing these defenseless woodland creatures. Because they can all walk down to the meat market and buy whatever they want for now. Whenever that stuff kind of breaks down, they kind of this this year has really proven that. I I honestly believe that it has shown some people that sometimes that stuff is not as reliable as you thought it was. So what are you going to do whenever the meat runs out? You going to just go grab a bow and arrow and run to the woods? No, you're going to have to depend on what you've gave yourself, the skills that you've learned, or the skills you're going to have. If you want to learn how to hunt and fish, you can. But if the whole world decided to do that all at once, we couldn't do that. It would not be so be sustainable. So no, on that level, no, you cannot. Everybody in this country cannot live on hunting and fishing anymore. There's too many people, not enough resources. This could not happen. However, the more people that hunt and fish and enjoy it and get their meat from the wild takes that burden off the supply chain. I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't like a good steak every now and then. If I'm going to go to the grocery store, buy a steak, or I want to buy a Boston butt, throw on the smoker, run to the grocery store and get one. I don't have hogs running around here that I've raised to do that with, but if I want to buy one, go to the grocery store and get one. If I go to the grocery store and there's not one there, I'll just, you know, drive through some public land down here in the low state. I'll go shoot me a hog, bring it back, and I got a Boston butt, I got bacon, I got ham, I got all I want. It's just a, I don't know, it's a personal preference. So, is hunting relevant in today's times? Yes, for the people who still do it. For the people who have never done it? No, it's not relevant for them until the food starts to run out. Then they're like, what can I do to feed me? What can I do to feed my family? So then you kind of start looking at other ways. How can the country be sustainable if production agriculture is starting to fail, the supply chain is starting to fail? Trust me, if the United States absolutely needed to, we could feed ourselves. I've seen the prairies. I've seen the agriculture here. I've seen the beef. I've seen what's here. We can feed ourselves if we decide to stop supplying aid to other countries. If it came down to it and it became America versus everyone else, America basically feeds itself, we can do it here. But we don't. Right now we you know, we sell animals, we sell meat, we sell grain, we sell it all over the world as foreign we give it away as foreign aid. We trade it as a commodity. 
But if all of it came down to it, America really could support itself. So hunting is still a part of that. As long as it's, you know, very well taken care of, well managed, and the people who want to hunt, hunt and take their food from the land, take their fish from the lake, then it takes that bird a little bit of a burden off of the rest of the country. So let us do what we do. We're going to eat just like you're going to eat. So to us, yes, it's still relevant. It's not going anywhere. In many states, it's our right to have that choice. So we're going to eat what we want to eat. You can eat what you want to eat. And to us, hunting is still very relevant and it's not going anywhere. So that's my take on that. We'll be back in just a second. Man, I know you guys like to go fishing as much as I do. So I'm going to give you a few tips real quick. It's going to really help you get to the lake and get home safely. We're going to basically we're going to focus on the trailer that hauls your boat. So the first thing, the way I'm going to look at this is we're going to start at from the point of hookup. So as soon as you drop that trailer down the ball of your pickup, your SUV, car, from there, back. We'll go through a few things that can really help you get your boat to the lake and to your house safely. The first thing you do, like I said, we're going to start at the ball. Make sure that the ball that you have fits the ball, the, the, what the tongue of the trailer is. So if you have a trailer that fits a 2-inch ball, make sure you have a 2-inch ball on your pickup. I have personally... Made the mistake of, you know, hauling my lawnmower trailer around, which has an inch of seven eighths ball on it, and then say, hey, I'm going to go to the lake tonight. I've thrown my boat on there, which has a two-inch ball. It fits. Lock it down. I went. Luckily, the boat was heavy enough. I didn't hit enough big bumps. Made it back. Realized it later. I was like, holy shit. I'm surprised I made it back. So make sure that the ball matches the hitch. Make sure that that you got that done. Second, make sure that you hook up your chains. Your safety chains need to go on there, need to hook up and be secure. Whether you have a clevis style hookup or whether you have a quick clip, make sure they're on there. Next, your lights. Make sure you plug your lights in. Have somebody there or figure out a way to do it yourself. When you check all your lights, make sure the the brake lights work. Make sure your turn signals work. The main thing is make sure that your brake lights work because if, or that and your, what you call your running lights, your tail lights, make sure that and your brake lights work. That's the most important part. That way you're not going down the road, you hit the brakes and somebody doesn't see your lights, they run all into the back of your boat. Make sure that's there. Once you get the boat hooked up and ready to go, the next thing you do is you move down to the trailer as you're checking your lights. Get to your wheels and tires. Make sure that your tires are in good shape. Make sure there's no belt showing. Make sure it's got good even wear. 
check the pressures in your tires. You can see on the tire, it tells you what pressure to run. Make sure it's within that pressure gradient that it's supposed to be there. Make sure, once you get all that stuff checked, make sure that your lug nuts are good and tight. Take your uh, One thing you definitely need to carry is a lug wrench. That way you put it on each one, you can twist it, make sure it's good and tight. And if you really want to go specific, figure it out, take a uh, torque wrench, make sure it's torqued down. But at the basic, take a lug wrench, make sure you have one in your vehicle. It's one of those necessary things you got to have, just like a jack. And make sure that every one of your lugs are good and tight. So that's going on. And then you can move on to the next thing, which is checking your bearings. Next thing you need to do is if you have a, a boat, you in, if you know a lot about bearings, one thing you can do to check your bearings is once you have it hooked up, is put a jack under it. Jack one side of the trailer up and check your bearings. Shake the wheels back, grab each side of the wheel, shake it back and forth. You shouldn't get any play there. Your tire and wheel should not shake and make any noise. If it does, your bearings are probably worn out. They need to be changed. You can either change out the bearings or you just go buy a hub kit, pull that hub off, put a new hub on, and that usually solves the problem. But, let's say you shake it, and everything's good. Depends on how many axles you have, but say you just have a single axle boat trailer. Shake it on one side, it's good, let you jack down, pull the cap off the end. If you have a greasable bearing, throw a little grease in there until it starts to push out, throw your cap back on, move on to the other side, do the same thing, jack it up. See if the wheel moves, wheel doesn't move, let it back down, put some grease in it, good to go there. If you have two axles on your trailer, do the same thing for every wheel. Make sure that it doesn't have any play, put some grease in it. Make sure you keep those bearings greased because it's a horrible feeling when you're going down the road at 60 miles an hour and you look back and you see a wheel just flopping around like a chicken with its head cut off. And all of a sudden it flies off the rim goes across the road and hits another car, that's not fun. Or you're if you only have one axle, go out there, wheel comes off, trailer hits the ground, and you're just throwing sparks everywhere. So make sure that your bearings are greased and that your bearings are in good shape and the hubs are in good shape. Make sure the tires are not showing any, like I said, make sure your tires aren't showing any threads. Make sure they're in good shape. That way you... Don't have a tire to go out going on the highway, hopefully. So moving on down to the trailer, let's get to the back of the trailer where your engine sit, your boat engine sits. Most boats now come with what they call a motor toter or a motor brace, transom saver. Make sure you have one of these. What this is, it's a bar that goes down to your trailer, comes up to the uh your motor it's on usually mounts somewhere above the foot above the blade somewhere it locks in somewhere there on your motor and what that does is it keeps your motor from bouncing up and down flexing the transom of your boat this is more of a saver for your boat than it is safety for your trailer but it keeps that transom from flexing every time you hit a 
every time you hit a bump and the weight of the motor bouncing up and down. All this does is just negates that flex in the motor, the transom. It'll save your boat. Make sure that the back of your boat is strapped down to your trailer. At the front of your trailer, we'll get back around to that in just a second, but on the front of your boat, you know, you have your winch and the hookup points on the front, and you got to make sure that's tightened down. Like I said, we'll get back to that in a second. On the back of your boat, once you pull your boat all the way in, you have it locked down. On the back, you got to make sure that you have straps back there. What that does is if you're going down the highway and the trailer's bouncing around, you hit a really big bump, that your boat don't jump up and sit sideways on one side of the trailer or the other, which can really throw the balance of your trailer off and cause swaying and can really cause you to get out of control. Not to mention it cause damage to your boat also. Or it could really break the winch on the front, boat slide off, and you got a boat in the middle of the highway. You don't want that. So make sure you have straps on the back of the boat holding it down to the trailer. So moving around to the other side, like I said, I always start mine, the way I always do mine, I start from the tongue of the trailer on the driver's side, and I work around the passenger side. Again, I check the lights on that side. I check the tires. I check the hubs. Grease the hubs. Whatever you got to do on that side. Then I work my way back to the tongue of the trailer. I make sure that my there's there's three safety chains. You have say two safety chains coming from the trailer to the car or your whatever you're towing with. You have a safety chain that comes from there on the tongue of the trailer up to the boat itself, hooks through. That way, if your winch fails, it, your boat's not gonna fall off or flip up. You got a chain there. Make sure your winch is in good shape. Make sure the teeth on it are stable. Make sure the, the peg that goes down into the teeth that holds it steady. It's not bent. Make sure it holds it good and tight. Make sure that that winch strap or cable, whatever you have on your boat, is in good shape. Make sure there's no frays in it. Make sure the hook is good. Make sure the safety on the hook is good and that it's hooked in there well. So make sure you tighten your boat down. You don't have to over-tighten it on the front. Don't make it so hard that you can't back it out. But make sure it's good and snug sitting up there on the front of the trailer, whether you have a pontoon, whether you have a V-hole. They all sit there different ways, but just make sure that that strap is good and tight and in good shape. Again, once you get back up to the tongue, check your plug for your lights, recheck your chains, everything. Make sure the pin that goes into your hitch is in good shape. Make sure all that stuff is there. There's also several things that you need to carry. You need to make sure that you have a jack, not the jack that goes in your car. Make sure you have a jack that fits your boat trailer and picks it up so you can change tires. Make sure you carry, it if you have a trailer that has a single axle, make sure you carry at least one spare tire. And make sure that you carry at least one spare hub assembly. That way, if you're going to the lake, no matter how much you put into it, eventually hubs will go out. Make sure you have a hub assembly in a box. You can buy these at AutoZone. You can buy them at most, most places that fit your trailer. Make sure you have one of these that come in a plastic box, like a toolbox. Have one of these. That way, all you got to do is pull that hub off, put a new hub on, throw the tire on. You're good to go. Um, a lot of trailers have a mount where you can put a 
tire and hub, a spare tire and hub assembly all in one on the trailer. That's a good option. That way you just take it all off, put another one on. Another good thing to carry is some road flares. That way if it's at nighttime, you can light those things up or some reflective cones. That way you're getting safe on the side of the road. Um, if you have a battery-powered impact, that's another good thing to carry. Carry it, it makes it a lot faster. Get this stuff done safer. The faster you get off the side of the road, the safer it's going to be. Make sure you carry any tools you may need, whether it's wrenches, whether it's screwdrivers, whatever you need to change out a hub and a tire. You're definitely going to need those eventually. If you haul a boat around, whether it's from here to the lake or from your house across the country, you're going to eventually need that kind of stuff. Make sure you carry all your tools, carry some safety equipment. One other thing that I would definitely carry, especially if you're fishing during the day, coming home at night, carry a reflective vest. That way, when you're on the side of the road, you not only is your boat shiny and you have your flares or reflective triangles up, you personally have a reflective safety vest on. That way, people can see you walking around your vehicle and you don't get run over. Trying to think of another thing. Oh, cell phones. Make sure you carry a cell phone. Whether you're on the lake, off the lake, keep it charged. Carry a portable battery pack. Um, make sure you carry ways to plug that in your car, in your boat. If you have a charging station in your boat, keep that cell phone charged. You never know when you're going to need it. Because let's say you get somewhere and you don't have service on your particular provider. If you get stuck in a bad situation... You can always dial 911. It will automatically go to the nearest tower no matter who it's for, whether if you have AT&T, it's going to attach to a Verizon tower or whatever. It's going to get you through 911 as best it can. Another thing you can carry, um, GPS locators. Some cars have it. A uh, panic button to say if you have OnStar, you can hit that. Let's say if I can think of something else that I would carry would make a big difference as far as keeping me safe on the side of the road. I would have to say the next thing I would carry is a big piece of wood. Um, I would say a a 2 by 2 or a 3 by 3 piece of 3 quarter inch plywood. Because if you're going down the road, say you're going out back road, you're going somewhere and you're, you're it breaks down. You're tire goes flat your hub goes out you're not always going to be able to pull over on a steady piece of highway to fix it you may have to pull over on the side of the road you may have to pull over in a driveway that piece of wood what it's going to do is going to give you a nice solid place to put your jack that way as you're jacking up your your trailer or your truck whatever you have to do it's going to give it nice solid that way it doesn't push down say if you had to pull over on dirt it's not going to push down into the dirt and cause your jack to fall over. It's going to give you a nice, nice, steady, solid base to jack your vehicle up on. You can always carry extra bulbs in your in your dash for your trailer lights, your personal car lights. Carry extra bulbs for that. Especially carry extra bulbs on your boat for your navigational lights. Let's say the lights go on your trailer. You have no way you blow a fuse in your vehicle. Your trailer lights don't come on. You can always turn on the navigational lights in your boat to give you a little bit of 
somebody, some notification there's a boat back there. Last thing you want is to be in the dark and somebody come up and hit the back of your boat. And if you don't have any lights on your trailer, it's your fault. So, those are some tips that I could give you. I'm sure there's many more that other people can give. If you have any other tips, send them to me and I'll be sure to include those on another podcast when we go back over this kind of information. So guys, I really hope that you got a lot out of this show. This was episode 10 and I'm really happy to bring this to you. Getting a lot of good feedback, man. I really love what I'm doing and I love the response I'm getting from y'all. So everybody, please, if you want to talk to me, you can email me at bottomdollaroutdoors at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at bottomdollaroutdoors. Get me on Facebook, send me a message. It's facebook.com slash bottomdollaroutdoors. Please, go check out the YouTube page, youtube.com. Change it up. It's youtube.com slash bottomdollaroutdoors. Made it easy. Go over there and find me. Watch those videos. Everybody, thank you for listening. Y'all have a wonderful weekend. God bless every one of y'all, and God bless the United States of America. Have a great week. <laughs>